This is Steve Downs, the voice of Master Chief Sierra 117, with a shout out to the Xbox Expansion Pass. Keep your heads up during this time of isolation. Stay positive. Play some games. Most importantly, finish the fight. Thanks for listening to XEP. Master Chief, out. Welcome one, welcome all to episode 29 of the Xbox Expansion Pass, recorded on Sunday, April 26th, 2020. I am your host, Luke Lore, the Insipid Ghost, and in this episode, we chat with Thomas Was Alone creator Mike Bithell about his experiences in creating games, working with voice actors, and the pressures of having consistent success. We'll examine the recently trademarked Xbox Series X logo, look at Phil Spencer's latest statements on a possible May Series X announcement, and just what Google Stadia's recent change in strategy means for Project xCloud. Enjoy. Yet another week of gaming is upon us and behind us. Welcome to XCP, discussing all things in the Gamerverse as they pertain to the Xbox ecosystem. And my goodness, that ecosystem has run the gauntlet this past week of announcements, half announcements, and rumors. The most recent one and most prevalent is that Xbox has trademarked the Xbox Series X logo, and that has furthered speculation for just what this logo might mean for the Series X and for possible May announcements. Now, it's important to note that companies trademark logos all the time. They trademark all sorts of things all the time. This new Series X logo certainly seems to be minimalistic. It's black and white. It seems to be a bit retro. Many people are identifying it to be something akin to a sports brand from the 90s, like Adidas or Reebok or whatnot. I do not possess the descriptive prowess to give you an accurate description of what it indeed looks like. So I encourage you to go online to GameSpot or VentureBeats or IGN or anywhere else and look at what this new Xbox Series X logo might indeed be. Now it is officially trademarked, but what this means is a bit up in the air. I sincerely doubt, and it seems very unlikely, that Microsoft would go so far as to completely rebrand the Xbox Series logo, getting rid of the orb that has the X on it that we're all so familiar with, as that is a legacy logo, something that we've seen from its iteration, from the very beginning, rather, of Xbox as a brand, and it's been iterated on each way through. What I do think this Series X moniker seems to mean is as a potential identifier on, say, something like box art. We are well aware that Xbox is going to be the brand name going forward. Doing away with something like Xbox One and Xbox 360 before that, they are now simply going to be Xbox, and the Series portion is going to be something to mark the iterations of the Xbox that you'll be using. Something that Microsoft's been working to for quite a long time, all things considered. From the very beginning of the Back Compat program and uh, allowing your libraries to travel with you, you purchase it on Xbox 360, 
nine times out of ten, it's going to be available with you on your Xbox One. We know for sure that if you've got something for Xbox One, it will work on your Xbox Series X. And they want to be able to use the Series moniker to identify for the much-rumored Xbox Series S. Uh, sometimes people call it Lockhart still. Uh, and we don't have an official announcement on those things, but it does seem very likely. Uh, there seems to be so much smoke, it'd be surprising if there wasn't a fire there when it comes to uh, a system that is perhaps more affordable, easier barrier to entry therein. So that, that is what I would say this Xbox Series X trademark might mean. Now, it has been met with mixed reception. Some people seem to love it. Some people seem to hate it. Uh, and, and a lot of people run the gauntlet therein in between. I myself don't really have strong feelings about it one way or another. Uh, this seems to remind me just a bit or is reminiscent of the Xbox clothing line, that open box uh, attitude, that minimalistic attitude that a lot of the Xbox clothing lines are seeming to have right now as they work to really make Xbox once again a worldwide brand. I would imagine that this is something you see alongside the standard Xbox markings. Maybe on box art it says standard Xbox and then next to it maybe Series X or best on Series X. Um, if there is a Series S or some version of it or whatever the successor to the Series X is, maybe those identifiers become necessary later on. Uh, who knows? I, I don't know. It's something that Apple has very successfully done in teaching its consumer base that, oh, you have a 5, now you need a 5S or a 5C, and your games and apps will run up to this point, but not before this point or that point. So, Perhaps that is the attitude that Microsoft is making with this trademark, or perhaps they are simply protecting it as a possibility, something that we have seen Activision do time and again. I believe at one point in Activision's history, they, they trademarked something like Call of Duty uh, Space Warfare or Call of Duty Space Tactical Warfare, and none of those games seemed to come to pass. However, Space Warfare as in and of itself, you battled in space in, I believe, Call of Duty Infinite Warfare and Call of Duty Ghosts. Both took you to space at various times. I want to say even one of the Modern Warfare games did that. So we do see companies protect their IP via trademarks all the time, uh, and there's a lot of legalese involved with that. Now, the timing of this reveal certainly seems to suggest that Xbox fans and gaming fans alike are going to be set to be getting quite a bit of news this May. In fact, that's one of the, the repeating and reoccurring rumors that seem to make their way through the social media spaces and through the various forum topic discussions is that there is a May announcement, a major set of May announcements coming in May. And Phil Spencer himself might have accidentally, or rather intentionally, fueled that speculation when he responded to Xbox community member Wagerman. Now, I will say Wagerman is someone who's quite prominent and prolific in the Xbox community, uh, a high Twitter following base. Uh, a lot of people know him, listen to him. He's been a part of that community for a long time. I had the good fortune of saying hello to him at Xbox Fan Fest uh, in 2019, and he was very kind and polite to me there. But he reached out uh, via Twitter uh, publicly and asked, Phil, what, what are the plans for the Xbox Series X? How are they coming along? And Phil Spencer responded, quote, uh, Review plans yesterday for continued sharing through launch. Team is doing great, great work and adapting. I've never been more excited about Xbox plan. We've heard you. You want transparency and authenticity. We plan to keep showing that way. Next step, not too much of a wait. In parentheses, he puts games, end quote. Now, what's so exciting about this is that Microsoft truly has been taking steps since 2015, and since, since Phil Spencer has truly had a chance to put his mark on the company and rallied his team around uh, a more unified vision, so much so that the CFO and the CEO of 
Microsoft, the big dogs, the guys with the $1.3 trillion market cap, they seem to be behind Xbox full force at this point. Uh, it seems to me that in writing the ship, they've course corrected their hardware. They've course corrected their infrastructure. They've worked to provide more stable network connections and a cloud-based service via Azure uh, that may, may have paved the way for xCloud in its early days and now into what we see at the moment. They've also made great use of their subscription services by way of things like Game Pass. The question therein wonders, you know, what's going to happen with the games with gold? And I actually do want to talk about that a bit later in this episode. But uh, I love the fact that amidst all those great things we've talked about, it has absolutely stood out that Microsoft has lacked games. Not in terms of quantity. I think it's a very silly thing when you go on and you hear discussions on social media or YouTube channels and they say Xbox has no games or Nintendo has no games, PlayStation has no games. That, that, that's fanboyism discussion and rhetoric that I don't necessarily subscribe to myself. In fact, all of the major publishers of first-party systems have plenty of games. It's a matter of their, their cultural impact and how much people get invested into those ecosystems and whether or not people like them upon launch. And the reality is that Microsoft's catalog hasn't delivered on the AAA promises that we thought it would early on in the generation and midway through the generation. They are lacking in that area. They have lacked the Spider-Mans, the Breath of the Wilds, the God of Wars, the Animal Crossings. It just hasn't landed for them. So amidst all the, the amounts of success and the plentiful amounts of, of failures, it's nice to see that, that Phil Spencer continues to double down on the idea that, yep, we got a lot right. Things are going great. I'm excited. We need to show you games. And it's true. They do need to show games. They need to show games that won't sell you and probably won't sell me, that won't sell the people that are already invested in the ecosystem, but rather the games that will turn heads outside of the standard uh, hardcore gamers that are pr already excited. Now, I have had great joy over the past few days. My friends and I have started a replay of a lot of the Halo campaigns, uh, diving into the Master Chief Collection and going through co-op campaigns together, and it has brought me an immense amount of joy to go back and play those legacy things. And the Master Chief Collection is just incredible in its presentation at this point. But it wasn't when it launched, and that truly set the stage for the, the mind share that it occupies for years to come. And so Microsoft needs to get this next generation right from the get-go, and that means delivering on games that don't need the year to get to, to get good, the way Sea of Thieves did, that don't need the time to add content in and clean up the bugs the way State of Decay did, the games that will deliver right out the gate and deliver at a high-octane quality. And I am absolutely fine if Microsoft continues to divide their efforts and provide single, double, and triple-A efforts throughout the course of its game cast. Game Pass subscription. I love the idea that Grounded can exist alongside something like Halo Infinite down the line. I love the idea that the sequel to Outer Worlds will exist alongside uh, the next high-octane Forza or whatnot. It's important that we have games that, that range in quality and, more importantly, in scope because they allow de developers to flex their muscles a bit. But the reality is they must have games to deliver and sell that Xbox Series X come holiday time. And it, it has to be noted that in Spencer's very open communication with the community, the fact that he's willing to discuss topics on IGN's Unlocked on a high-profile site like IGN, uh, but then also respond to a community member on Twitter, that speaks volumes and the continued confidence that Microsoft has going forward. And it's something that we truly haven't seen for a long time, something that I hope to see PlayStation echo. 
Uh, I sincerely doubt Nintendo will subscribe to any of those philosophies. They seem to march to the beat of their own drum. But Sony seems to be taking uh, some of the playbook out of some of Microsoft's playbook in recent years to course correct themselves, much the way the companies do. Companies go back and forth all the time, and that competition is quite healthy. Microsoft seems to be going for the jugular of any of its opponents as they work to continue to to make an impact on the markets and retake some of that mind share. They're attacking the Asian markets in a couple different ways, something we've talked about on this show quite a bit by that, uh, by Cart Racer Drift and by a Cart Rider Drift, I believe it's called, Crossfire X, by incorporating a number of different, uh, typically considered Japanese style games and Sony specific or previously Sony exclusive games. I'll tell you right now, guys, I just recently dove in to play Yakuza 0. And that game is weird. It is cool. I was expecting a Sleeping Dogs experience, a Grand Theft Auto with a Japanese overlay type approach. And that is a very unique game. And those are beloved games. In fact, I got in trouble on the old Twitterverse when I went out there and said, man, I can't believe it doesn't autosave. And where are the English doves? I'm reading Japanese subtext. And oh my goodness, did the Yakuza fans come out of the woodwork. And they were not happy with Mr. Ghost at that point. Uh, but that's great. Those those games are now available on Xbox. Kingdom Hearts coming to or on Xbox. The Final Fantasy games already on and more coming to Xbox. And those are great things to see as they work to bring back Mindshare uh, worldwide. And in the current day, right now, March NPD numbers have recently come out, and they have spelled a, a wonderful amount of su- success for all the major first parties over this past uh, month. March NPD in the year 2020 amidst COVID-19, gaming is up to, to an extraneous event. Uh, PS4 and Xbox One both Year over year, up 25% in console sales. That means they have sold 25% more consoles in March 2020 than they did in March 2019. That's a huge, great bit of news for all involved, for sure. For Microsoft fans, I think it hosts a a bit of a, a stronger uptick, perhaps, than Sony. I think Sony, given their market dominance, has likely brought in some people to play Final Fantasy VII Remake, and that's a great thing. But for Microsoft, it's getting them into the ecosystem and more specifically into the Game Pass ecosystem and investing in that in that ecosystem in a way that allows them to go back, look at some of the, the good games that Microsoft did offer this past generation, uh, some good gameplay experiences for fans to check out, realize, hey, you know what? This may not be the game that caught all the headlines and and brought in the casual fan, but I'm able to enjoy this, and I've got a plethora of access to games uh, like The Witcher 3, like State of Decay 2, like Halo 5, and, and more. I mean, goodness gracious, Game Pass is packed. So this is a good thing because it builds an ecosystem, and Microsoft has doubled and tripled down on the idea that not only do they express themselves uh, well with backward compatibility and legacy, but with forward compatibility. So anybody that is diving into that ecosystem, buying a game digitally, as uh, I would imagine many people are more want to do right now, as physical availability is certainly limited depending upon where you live. As people dive into that, they're realizing, oh, I don't have to sacrifice my library when I uptick to the Series X. Uh, What I am curious about is what in this 25% uptick that we're seeing year over year, is it Xbox One X's that are going on sale? Because those have gone, uh, those have suffered a recent, uh, suffered, those have experienced a recent price drop, which certainly seems to suggest they'll move units. Is it the SAT edition? Is it the Xbox One S standard with a disk drive? I want to know what additions are selling and selling well. Because uh, that might spell 
a or set up a formula for when consumers decide, hey, I'm ready for an Xbox Series X. Uh, I'm ready for the next greatest and best one. Do you wait a bit because you just bought a console six months earlier? Do you dive right in because you bought the weaker console to just try it out and see that you liked it and now you want to uptick? If Lockhart and the Xbox Series S is real, you know where does that come into play? We've heard a lot of rumors and speculation that the Xbox Series S might be a four teraflop system. Now, for the record, I don't know what a friggin' teraflop is, and the reality is most people don't. But four teraflops is less than the current Xbox One X's, I think, six teraflops that it has available to it. But by way of efficiency and design and where they put the memory and how much power you're able to generate, uh, you got me. I think that'll spell an interesting conversation going forward. So take that for what you will. They take that, that's packing in a lot of different topics into kind of one big discussion. But I'm very curious to know, are any of you uh, young, amazing, incredible, beautiful listeners, are any of you recent acquirers of an Xbox? Did you recently purchase an Xbox, even more specifically in March? I mean, are you part of that 25% uptick? Did you buy a PS4 instead? Was there a reason you picked one versus another? I'm very curious to hear what your thoughts are on the, on sn snagging a new system and whether or not you plan to upgrade in the fall to the xbox series x to the playstation 5 if that does come to pass this year which i, I believe it will uh, perhaps in more limited blue ocean style quantities the way nintendo types to make tends to make themselves sparse i wonder if sony might be forced to do that uh, by way of simple production uh, but are you are you go did you buy a system are you planning to uptake anyway let me know your thoughts tweet at me at insipidghost on twitter and let us move on to the next story now this next story to me stands out as remarkably interesting, not at all surprising, and yet could have ramifications and ripple effects throughout the entire gaming industry. Google Stadia has struggled since it launched, and I would argue its struggles have been a huge boost to the beta service provided by Microsoft and Xbox in Project xCloud. Google Stadia announced now that it's free to use for anyone who signs up with their Gmail account and that their pro uh, subscription service is going to go through some changes. You can, right now, if you sign up for the free version, you can get two months of pro for free and, and auto-set it to not charge your credit card. There's some, there's some legalese involved in there, but Google Stadia certainly has also seen an uptick since COVID began and people began social distancing and making gaming a more regular part of their lives. But there is no doubt about it. Google Stadia lags severely far behind its competitors and hasn't delivered on the many promises. One of those promises, of course, being 4K gaming. And Google has outright said, much the way many uh, cloud-based services have said, that they're reducing the amount of 4K provided, defaulting down to 1080p. Now, I will note very clearly for anyone that might be like, oh, Stadia's not delivering on promises. I think Stadia and any other cloud service provider gets a bit of a pass in times like these as we work to reduce internet frustrations uh, by way of simple you know, down ticks from 4K to 1080p. But having the option to uptick like Netflix offers or YouTube offers, I think everybody gets a bit of a pass on that. And you have to exercise a bit of understanding when it comes to those things. But how does Stadia's adjustment in strategy by, by making themselves free and available for everybody how does that impact xCloud? Google Stadia's got like something 14 games that you can get right now, and they've got more announcements coming after the, this recording. I believe the week of this recording going live, there'll be more announcements coming after that. Um, great, but do you compete with the, the over 100 that are now available in Project xCloud and the, the over 20 countries? There's a lot to, to take in on that. I would look at this, and this is where I want you to listen. I'm, I'm going to take you on a journey, and I'm curious what you think on this. So let me know, XCP people. 
Stadia now free for everybody. Stadia under-delivered, a lot of goodwill going towards xCloud for people that are in the know. I would think that this paves the way for somewhere down the line, whether they do it at console Series X launch or a transition over the next year, maybe two years, but I would think that this comfortably paves the way to get rid of games with gold. Now stick with me on this. Games with Gold has had varying levels of good games and bad games and there's constant debates comparing to PS Plus, whatever. Games with Gold needs to go in its current iteration. Game Pass is delivering on all fronts. Game Pass Ultimate is something that, that Microsoft is continuing to push. They're, giving, they're letting people stack it on top of gold and then combine them to get invested into the service through 2022. And uh, I would argue that anybody should take advantage of sales when they get them for two-for-ones. But it is time for Games with Gold to go away. However, most market consumers, most customers, and I, I sincerely doubt uh, most gamers would exercise this mentality, but, but most people don't like having something taken away just be taken away. So this paves, and op paves the way, opens the door for them to say, hey, Games with Gold is gone. We've gotten rid of it. It was a great program. It served its purpose. We think Game Pass provides the best option and value going forward. However, we're not leaving you hanging if you are a Games with Gold supporter. Now every subscriber to Xbox Live Gold has access to Project X Cloud. Boom. I think that is how you transition it. And you can make some adjustments therein about the catalog that's available, people that have purchased the game, if you own the game or not. But you have to find a way to justify people subscribing to your service, particularly with so many free options available. GOG, Epic Game Store, PlayStation, a lot of them offer more free alternatives to getting into free-to-play games, and Microsoft has been able to have a wonderful influx of cash since Xbox Live became uh, what it was through the 360 era. It's generated a huge amount of money and allowed them to navigate those, those eras and being outsold two to one. But Xbox Games with Gold? doesn't deliver what it once did it doesn't have it doesn't have to it's different now games game pass is the value there so take that away and offer xcloud as the alternative all right here you go we're moving games with gold now you have access to project xcloud and let me tell you product xcloud in its beta form dope it's awesome i love it i would be using it tenfold times more if i wasn't stuck at home on my tv but the idea that i can play on any device or go downstairs or play on a pc when that that when that ability comes to pass, I'm stoked for that. Absolutely stoked for that. I recently booted up uh, Gears, uh, what, Gears Tactics on PC. My computer can't run it. Very disappointed that I can't review that game for you guys. My computer can't run it. But Project xCloud could allow PC users to jump into that sooner than waiting for the console version that's happening later this year. That's exciting. That's super exciting. So postulate that. Let me know. Email me insipidghost at, at gmail.com or on Twitter at insipidghost. Let me know if that makes rational sense to you. Am I out of left field and I'm nuts and you want to keep games with gold? Uh, I'm very curious. You can't always have AAA bangers in games with gold. It's just not realistic. And toy box turbos might actually have a lot of fun in that. The game looks cool. You're playing with micro machines. But is that going to make headlines and make people happy And, and when compared to you know, PlayStation giving the Nathan Drake collection, I, I, I understand where people are coming from. So let me know if I'm crazy on that. 
I did indeed mention Gears Tactics, and I will tell you right now, I'm disappointed my PC can't handle the game at the moment, and it's not worth it for me to try and offer you a review or coverage for a game that I can't put hands-on firsthand. But I will say, if any of you wonderful listeners do go hands-on with the game and you want to offer a two-minute review of the game and send me audio, reach out to me on Twitter or via email. Let me know you're interested. We can set up something, work something out. I'd love to put you on the show and feature you and spotlight you uh, if you're willing to do that or if that's something you would want to do happy to do that for you guys because i'm a huge gears fan i'm super excited the, the latest book from jason m howe arrived uh it's, it's gears of war bloodlines it takes place and coincides along with gears 5 he wrote the most recent gears novel prior to that ascendance which was fantastic i'm a wonderful gears fan i really enjoy gears uh, a lot I, I would say it's a close second to my love for halo but uh, I, I just won't be able to give you guys the coverage that i initially wanted to with gears tactics so I would love to provide that, and if you as a community want to help me with that, great. If not, hey, we'll all wait for the console version and have a good time there. Before we move into listener questions and then our interview with Mike Bithel, I do want to say I've been playing Yakuza 0, as I said, but I'm playing a game called Deliver Us the Moon. It just launched into Game Pass. It's awesome. It's great. It's not an action game. It's not a walking simulator. It's somewhere in between a puzzle game, walking simulator, and an exploration game. You're investigating via environmental storytelling uh, what has happened uh, in this catastrophic event that has stopped the moon providing a remote power source for the Earth, which has gone through its own set of frustrations. In this time of frustration and hecticness, while I'm playing Halo with friends, while I'm playing uh, Yakuza, while I'm playing the Arkham games, while I'm playing all these games to try and take my mind away, and and they're very action-heavy, to boot up Deliver Us to the Moon, or Deliver Us the Moon, rather, has been great. And I'm going to review the game this next week, and I'm going to have a review for you in the next show. But go try it out. It's awesome. It's a really great game that's calm. It's it's relaxing. You can play it with your family around. Uh, it's the type of game that you would sit on the couch and, oh, look over here. Try this. Look at that. It's neat. It's an experience, I would say. It's not stressful. It's not scary. At least not, not so far. I'm having a good time with it, and I hope you guys uh, give it a chance to check it out. All right, cool kids and amazing XEP listeners, you guys wrote in with some incredible questions this past week. And before I read the first question, I want to give a comfortable and quiet shout-out to a friend of mine named Brian. Now, I will say it means the absolute world when all of you, as a content creator, when anybody goes on and reviews the show, uh, rates it on iTunes or shares it on Twitter. Or one of the coolest things for me is when you guys tag the guest that was on the show. It's like, hey, I heard you on uh, Insipid Go's show. It was awesome. That meant the world to me. A couple of you did that for Andrea Renee and Caustic Reality and a few others. And it's really cool. It's a heartwarming thing. But I got probably the best compliment in the world this past week. Uh, a, a listener named Brian reached out via email and just sent me kind words about XEP. And I tell you what, I try to be very objective in this show and I try to provide just coverage and my thoughts. But I also, I think I'm getting more personal and a bit more emotional in, in talking to you guys as an audience because I'm more comfortable in doing it as the show grows. And Brian absolutely made my day. I won't read his email uh, verbatim because I don't have permission for that, but it really did mean the world. So Brian, if you're listening, if you're in the car with your kiddos, shout out to them as well. Uh, it meant the world to hear from you, a fellow educator also. Uh, really appreciate you doing that. And, and those are the things that that make it worthwhile and give you a, a wonderful uplift during kind of this time of difficulty. So you rock, man. Uh, other friends of the show wrote in and absolutely made my day as well. Todd Oxtra writing in this week, as he so often does. Todd, I hope you and your family are well, my friend. I think about you often. 
Uh, he says, what do you see as the approach to hardware for Xbox One as the Series X is launched? Will it disappear or will they create an even cheaper box based on that hardware? Oh, that's a great question. The, I, I think the idea that he's, he's saying is now once Series X launches, what's going to happen to the current Xbox Ones? Do you see a slim redesign, kind of like the way PS2 had that super, super slim uh, at one point? Do you see uh, Xbox One S's fade away and X's are on the shelf but at a severely reduced price? What's, what's going to happen to that family of devices? Uh, great question, Todd. I think, I think uh, if you'd asked me a month ago, my answer might have been different. But right now, it looks like they're simply paving the way and getting the Xbox One X's out of the way, which surprises me because of the rumors we hear about Lockhart being four teraflops and smaller and uh, more efficient in design, but the Xbox One X can do some of the same things. I'm very curious to hear uh, what they end up deciding to do, but I would hope that they get rid of those S's as much as possible. Nothing broke my heart more than to recommend control to so many people, uh, you included, because I had an absolute blast with it, and the amount of technical frustrations, people that were using the original launch Xbox, which, oh, goodness gracious, James Suti's doing that, and it's wild. Uh, if you're using the original launch Xbox or an S, and it's not running the games that we expect it to well, that kind of bums me out. And so I would hope that the Xbox One X is still on shelves for the next two years. Two years because they said they promised one year of transitional coverage, and then that, that remaining year, I would hope, is just getting rid of stock, legacy bundles, that kind of thing, and saying, hey, you have Game Pass if you want it, and you have access to all these games, sure. But I hope the S goes away quickly so that nobody is held back by hardware in experiencing games like Control that will probably look great when it comes to Series X, but they should look great right now, and that's what they were sold. So that's what I expect to happen. Uh, as far as a slimmer version of that, I don't think Microsoft should worry about that too much. I don't see them, unless it's a cost-saving measure, it makes sense to retool their their, their factories, and if particularly amidst production frustrations or concerns uh, with COVID. Unless it's financially viable to slim down that box and sell it that way, I would not invest any time and effort in keeping the Xbox One X alive in a different form than it is right now. Uh, I doubt it's even physically profitable at the moment. So unless it's a cost-saving measure, I hope they, they gradually fade it out over two years and make their way into Series X. And then uh, if they do a Series S, make that available as well. I also, you know, on that Series S, I've said that a lot this show. I brought it up. It's a potential rumor. We don't have it confirmed. I hope that whenever it does come out, it's not designed in such a way that it is limiting what the Series X and its later iterations can do. That is a big fear of mine. Xbox seems to be the choosing to hang its hat on power over the past few years, and I'm sure that sold some units, but it didn't win a generation or recover a generation or anything like that. Uh, I hope that if they're, they're going the power route and they're going the Game Pass route in this next gen, that the Series S or some variation isn't holding it back. I think xCloud's a great equalizer there. If you set up your systems to, to play xCloud so you can have access to games even if your hardware can't do it itself and it's just a cloud-based thing cool but that's that's a, a constant concern for me and i wonder how they navigate it may might have the answers june might have the answers uh, either way come november we better we better know better know something because you can't sell just to the hardcore that's your early early buy-ins but that's not how you survive a generation you got to get people that are maybe mildly interested or not interested at all to buy in on your games and it's that same logic is the reason that we put ori over onto to switches and cuphead onto switches and such like that 
James Suti writes in, and James says, So, with the announcement of Cyberpunk 2077 1X console, in my opinion, has changed. It is just so pretty, I want it. I already ordered the controller. If I can order the console, I'm going to get it in June. And yes, my original is still running barely. Yeah, James, it's wild to me that your original is still running. I'm surprised you've still got that thing. Uh, at this point, you know, I, normally I'd tell you to go and, and toss that thing out for target practice, but, but man, good on you. That's awesome, man. I'm glad it's still running and, and so close to the next gen. Why upgrade uh, except for a special edition as gorgeous as the Cyberpunk console? I can tell you right now, I would be in an awkward dilemma if my, my current Xbox, whatever I'm playing right now, uh, if that one started fading and dropping out, what do you do? I would be in that same dilemma. I think I would buy one of the cheapest bundles of Xbox One X I could get and then trade that in towards a Series X. But you seem to have an affinity for that cyberpunk aesthetic. And I would say go for it. I would say get that cyberpunk console. See if you love it. See if it's great for you. You'll know, you know you'll get a digital copy of cyberpunk when it comes out. You also know that because of smart delivery, it'll upgrade to the Series X. And if at some point along the way when Series X is close to launch, you say to yourself, man, I, James Suti, would love a Series X right now, you might be motivated to sell and trade in that, that Cyberpunk console. You'd probably get a good pretty penny for it, maybe even break even. Uh, maybe you could do that. I would say go for it. Experience some of the great games that are available in 4K, HDR. It's not a time to be holding yourself back from enjoyment if you have the financial means. you got to make do with whatever you can to have fun at the house right now. I would say go for it. And if it's super important to you, you'll find a way to keep that 1X on display or, or in use somewhere in your house and then find a way to get the Series X. You'll prioritize and choose accordingly. But I would not hold out if you really got your eye on it. You clearly love Cyberpunk. You're getting the controller. You know you'll get smart delivery. I'd say go for it, my man. Uh, the last question that we will entertain, Antonio Guillen writes in, and he says, Do you feel not adding any major gimmicks or improvements to the, to the base Series X controller, similar to what PlayStation 5 did with DualSense, uh, will hurt Microsoft in the long run? I'm kind of bummed we won't have any major changes to the X controller, like the Elite Paddles, for instance, for probably four to five uh, or six years. And so that's a great question, man. And I, I don't think it hurts it by any means. I think it would have hurt the console if it didn't have back paddles, but the, the DualSense 5 did have back paddles. And I fully expected PlayStation to go the back paddle route, given the fact that they released an attachment to their PS4 controller, which... Uh, looks just awful, but my friend Mr. Babbitt, host of the Trophy Room, he says that it's fantastic. Great, cool. Uh, I I am going to be using my Elite controller a lot because I prefer the paddles in competitive games. Uh, I don't think it hurts it by any means because a lot of times those gimmicks don't really sell. HD Rumble and the, the Joy-Cons. Man, those Joy-Cons are a mess. They're, they're, they're not good. As much as I love the technology and I love my Switch, those Joy-Cons are not good. Too many drift problems. The HD Rumble wasn't really utilized. doesn't really make sense to have HD Rumble when the device is so light. It can throw off your perception of the game. Uh, when you look at the PS4 DualShock controller, uh, DualShock 4 specifically, it, the light bar is too bright. Multiple problems with the light bar and battery life. Uh, it, 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 that touchpad went underutilized. The triggers are frustrations. Even the gimmicks that were put into the Xbox One controller, they had uh, resistance stuff so that you could feel like like the road when you're driving into Forza game, you'd feel ABS if your ABS kicked in. Uh, those stutters there. Sometimes too much technology is ineffective. Sometimes having so much cool stuff is expensive, 
jumps up the price, and isn't utilized much by games. Simplicity is often the best route. Nintendo taught us that with the Wii. Nintendo's taught us that with the 3DS and the DS Lite. Uh, maybe we need to take a page out of that. Maybe that's what Microsoft did do. Uh, I am surprised there's no paddles because paddles are a game changer. Make no mistake. But uh, it, it is wild to me that I had to pay $180 to have a controller with paddles. So take that for what you will. Uh, I'm, I'm still surprised by it. And, you know, I hope that answers your question, man. Guys, it has been a wonderful weekend show, and I appreciate you listening to me. Uh, and I am now going to be sending you over to what I think is one of my favorite interviews of all time. Mike Bithell, the creator of Thomas Was Alone, the creator of Volume, a man who's had a chance to work with wonderful voice acting talents like Andy Serkis, Snoke from Star Wars, Schmeagol from uh, the Lord of the Rings series, was in his games. He burst onto the scene with Thomas Was Alone, and over the last decade or so, brings an amount of experience and indie development knowledge that is, to me, some of the most impressive. And so I hope you continue expanding your knowledge of the gaming industry by enjoying this interview uh, with Mike Bithell. If you enjoy it, I mean, it would mean the world to me that you reach out, let me know, and let him know, because those things really do make a difference. Uh, and they, they brighten my day the way Brian did earlier with that email and the way some of you guys have been doing on the old Twitterverse. Uh, but, but I hope you enjoyed the interview. Coming up interviews over the next few weeks, I can't tell you all of them, of course, but one of them is set to be, provided schedules allow, uh, Gamers Outreach, who work to provide video games in hospitals for those who, for children who might need entertainment or a brightening of their day. And so at, at some point, I'll tweet out asking for questions for them, and you guys can write in and ask questions or words of encouragement for those uh, who work with Gamers Outreach. That's it for me, everybody. Have a wonderful rest of your week. Enjoy the interview with Mike Bithell, and I will see you guys again soon. Take care. All righty, guys. Today we are fortunate to welcome Mike Bithell, creator of Thomas Wells Alone, Volume, and many more here onto the Xbox Expansion Pass. Mike, how are you? I'm, I'm good. I'm, I'm good within the specific criteria that any of us can really be good these days. But yeah, no, I'm good. It's been a, a productive day. Busy, but, but fun. Yeah, I've had a good one. Been lots of direction today. Lots of uh, voice acting and recording and all that fun stuff. Good that, stuff. That is very cool. You have a storied career, I would say, mm -hmm. in game development. You've made lots of different types of games uh, with lots of different, I would argue, goals in mind. Can you let us know where it was you kind of got into the gaming realm and how you ended up where you are? Well, I think I started where I assume most people do, which was play as a player, you know, as, a, as someone who was playing games, you know, growing up uh, PC gamer, kind of as a kid. Uh, my parents wouldn't let, uh, wouldn't let us have a games console because they were, in their words, worried I'd waste my life on video games, and I've shown them. Um, so, uh, so I had the PC games, you know, uh, Doom, anything I could get from Apogee kind of back in the day, like just anything mm -hmm. I'd squirrel onto that PC. Um, and then my first console was Dreamcast, so actually like way later and kind of much older than most people will get their first console, mm -hmm. uh, you know, with my first kind of, my first job. Um, and yeah, it was uh, from there kind of studied. I want, I knew I wanted to work in games and really know how games were made. Back then there wasn't, I think, as much understanding. You didn't have like, you know, Danny doing his no-clip documentaries, you didn't really understand, like, how the process of making a game actually worked. So I um, I just assumed that maybe if I went to university and learned something about computers, I could get in. I kind of worked my way through university and then kind of, yeah, ended up in the games industry. Uh, mm -hmm. Kind of a boom era in the UK where, bluntly, back then it was quite easy to get a job in the UK games industry. That's not the case anymore, necessarily. Mm -hmm. um, and, yeah, just built from there. 
and you worked for other studios while working on your first solo project, Thomas Was Alone. Is that correct? Yeah, so I'd worked, uh, there was a company called Blitz Games, uh, which I probably is best known in the States uh, and probably even best known among Xbox players in particular. We did the Burger King games. Do you remember the, like, the, there was like a Burger King racing game, like a creepy sneak, it was called Sneak King. Yes! Um, yeah, so I didn't work on those. They, they were made just before I started the company, but that was kind of their claim to fame was they did the, they did the Burger King games. So lots of like licensed games, lots of kind of um, uh, stuff on the Wii and kind of that era of gaming. Um, so yeah, that was my first job. And then while working there, I got, you know, super jealous seeing like indie games starting to happen in the outside world and started making my own stuff like as a side project while, while kind of going into work every day as a, as a level designer. And, uh, yeah, one thing that's another Thomas was like, kind of found an audience and it kind of let me do my own thing and start a company. Well, it really caught fire once it landed, and you were doing that on your own for what? If I, if I, my research is correct, about an hour or so a night while you were yep. working for this primary group. Yeah, no, I was. I was literally like my my girlfriend. My work girlfriend works in animation, so she was away working on a movie um, in a different part of the country, um, and I. Uh, so I just had a lot of free time basically. So I would just like yeah, an hour a night after work, and a few hours on a Saturday, you know, and just kind of you know getting on with it basically and, and it was always just meant to be like a you know hobby thing something just a fun thing like our our dream my dream was like maybe it makes enough money that i can go on a cool holiday you mm -hmm. know it wasn't like, it was never meant to be a a thing it wasn't like gonna start a games company but then you know when it did as well as it did that kind of seemed like the only option available to me to go and kind of do something from there that's so cool and it it was a flash game at first and then you mm -hmm. bring it to to windows platform and then eventually it makes its way to ps3 and vita and mm -hmm. and you know so many more platforms that has to be exciting but also was it nerve-wracking to be oh, the yeah. game at the time it was super weird like and it was also kind of it was a slow burn like it, it came out on pc about six months before it came out on anything else because it didn't really come together the reason it did so well on consoles i think was um it was it was around the time that Vita was not doing so great. So v, you know, Vita was kind of at the end of its life cycle, and Sony had this, I think, really clever plan of like, we're going to put some indie games on it, and it's going to convince people to buy Vitas for one more year before it kind mm -hmm. of falls off the off the radar. And mm -hmm. Thomas Malone was one of the games that they did that with. Um, so it got kind of picked up by Sony, and 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 then my they literally came asking for vita i said we can do vita but i really want it on ps3 because to me it was like i really want this on a home console even though it's just sure. rectangles um and that was the deal we did and, and and then that from there that kind of built up and we got to put it on everything eventually um but yeah so it was it just yeah just kind of gained the momentum i think it was also uh anyone who's seen it knows it's, it's you know it's just rectangles with some with some good hopefully good narration over the top of it like ultimately um, it was one of those tricks that you can only really pull off once. You know, it was mm -hmm. one of those things that just no one else had done something that minimalist in the modern day. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't, I didn't do it to be clever. It just, it, it turns out after the fact. You kind of, when things like this happen, happen to you, you know, you spend years afterwards going like, what? How did that come together? What was the, what were the brilliant choices? I must have made some good choices because it went well. Like, and you realize, no, it was just luck. It was just like that was the thing that no one else had done at that point. Um, I was the first person basically to be lazy enough to put art, not put art in a game. Um, and because of that, it felt original and it felt fresh. And, and, and ultimately, as it's often the case with games, like being original, being fresh is the thing that kind of can capture a lot of attention. And you see that time and again, especially with indie games, that mm -hmm. it's not necessarily the best indie games that blow up. It's the indie games that give you an experience you've never kind of had before or surprising or weird or different. 
Um, and that was what that game was. Did it, was it difficult to handle the, the all it, in my mind, it was immediate attention. I don't know if it felt immediate to you to handle the influx of, of people that are interested, the money I would imagine probably changed your life a bit in, in ways and to have the attention on you as now you're Mike Bithel, you made this hit game and now you need to work on more. Did it, did, did you ever feel pressure there? It's weird. Like it, it definitely wasn't overnight. Like it was definitely a bit of a slow burn, thankfully, mm-hmm. which, but yeah, no, I mean the, the money side of it was great. Cause I mean, I, you know, ultimately I got to choose like, do I want to like buy sports cars or do I want to like start a studio? And mm-hmm. I chose studio, which, you know, nearly 10 years on, I'm very glad that's the choice I made. That's going quite well. Mm-hmm. Um, but like that, that was a nice, yeah, that broke me out of the loop. That got me to kind of go and do my own thing and and, and start something, which is cool. Um, in terms of like, I mean, it's not celebrity, but like internet fame or whatever. That was, that was nice. I think it was also weird to learn how to deal with that and to kind mm-hmm. of uh, be, be that way. I, I, I remember seeing the other day, uh, someone on uh, someone on Twitter was talking about how awful I was to them at an event once. And mm-hmm. it was years ago. It was like 2013 or something. So it was just after Thomas Was Alone came out. And I was reading this account. It was basically just like, everyone acts like Mike's a good guy. But actually, you know, he was really rude to me this one time. And I was reading. I was thinking, I was clearly having a panic attack. Like I was reading that. I was like, this was yeah. me like freaking out. Like, because because when that first, I remember that first year, mm-hmm. um, I'd gone from just anonymous nerd number 5,000 at a games event to having people coming up and wanting selfies and, and that kind of relationship with the audience. And that was weird. And it was just kind of freaked me out a bit. Um, so yeah, but you, you, you learn how to deal with that. And for me now, it's kind of, it's nice in that it's settled a bit now. So it's not, because I'm not the super exciting new fresh indie anymore. I'm kind of that mm-hmm. person who's been around a while. So that's nice. So I can kind of, I, I you know, I, I, I know enough people, I can have a nice time at things, but it's not, as big as it was, uh, mm-hmm. which is honestly really kind of relaxing and, and, and nice. Um, but it's still nice. What's weird is if I if I show up in a video, um, I remember I did, um, back whenever I used to do, um, I was on uh, Coptional a couple of times, um, Total Biscuits uh, YouTube show. Mm-hmm. And I remember I would go on that show and then for a week after, everyone in the street would keep recognizing me and i'd be like wow people watch total biscuits show that is like that that will make you famous for a week i got like a mm. discount on a, a, like a stationery shop because i went into oh. the stationery shop i was like oh my god you you were on total biscuits thing i was like yes i was and he was and he gave me like 20 percent off a off a pen or something it was like that's that's cool that's nice that's that's that that's a nice that's the right amount of kind of success or um celebrity or, or whatever internet fame whatever it is um so they you adjust you learn how to deal with those things and it's it's nice yeah i mean, I just have to think about the wild ride of people that hit what 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 consumers think of as overnight success and just the the, the ha- handling of that it has to be wild now you followed thomas was alone up with one of my personal favorite games uh volume and oh, you like that, that one nice volume was was absolutely one of my favorite again you you got another b- a big voice actor and a great cast there it was uh really exciting to see but it again adopts this minimalist style and you mm. just a moment ago said that that was you being lazy with Thomas was alone. Uh, <laughs> I, I didn't, I would never have interpreted it that way. Tell me about volume. Mm. So yeah, yeah. A bit of self-deprecation maybe. Well, volume was specifically, I think Thomas was alone was the game I made because that was the game I could make. Right. Like I, I, I wasn't a great programmer. I, I wasn't an artist, you know, making it on my own. That was the kind of game I could realistically achieve. 
um, with volume, it was that was the game that was the dream game. That was the kind of this is the game I've wanted to make since I was 13. Basically, like me doing my version of Metal Gear Solid. Here's the things I like about these games. Here's the things I think I could do better. Throwing all of that at the wall. And some of it works and some of it doesn't, as, it, as is always the case with every video game. Um, mm-hmm. But but it was fun. In terms of its like aesthetic and stuff, there was definitely a lot of choices there because I was, Thomas was alone did well, but it didn't do like, I can make AAA games based on my own money now well. Like it was definitely mm-hmm. like, volume was basically me spending a very big chunk of the money I made from Thomas was alone to make something cool, but it wasn't, you know, it was, it was not super expensive. And, and ultimately what came in was that art style was kind of the reaction to that. It was basically what, what do I have? You know, it's like, it's like budgeting, like your, how much food, how much money you're going to spend on groceries in a week. Right. You, you know how much you have. It's just that scaled up and you, you work out how far you can take it. Um, mm-hmm. And with volume, it was, yeah, let's use a bunch of these old, kind of low 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 poly kind of tricks we actually hired there was a guy called wayne on it who was this amazing uh environment artist i'd known in my previous job who who had kind of been a big part of doing like ps2 era graphics Mm -hmm. uh so he knew how to make amazing low poly art really cheaply and quickly so it's like okay let's build an art style around those ideas and kind of pull that in and i think that's been a that's been a quality of all of our games has been kind of looking at what we can do and trying to make the best of the limitations you always have, you know, and this is true. Triple A guys have limitations as well. They're much bigger limitations, but like there's, it's always there. That's what makes it design rather than art. You're kind of working within those constraints. Uh, mm-hmm. So that's what we did. And volume was, yeah, the, the say volume was kind of based on that. Well, it was interesting to me that I ended up playing volume, of course, on my, my PlayStation and Thomas was alone, hit lots of platforms, and then it seemed as though Bethel Games a- aimed to be more console-specific. What informs your decision to to go on to a certain platform? Is it ease? Is it relationships, negotiations? How do you decide where to put a game uh, throughout the course of development? So I think what people maybe don't always know is that like there's, it's really expensive to put a game onto a specific platform. Like you have to do a lot of work, uh, especially with console games. Each console has its own kind of chunk of costs. Mm-hmm. Uh, so generally, uh, the the first console you come to, the kind of the we're launching exclusively or time limited exclusive or whatever on this platform, that's often defined by yes relationships relationships are a much bigger part of it than people realize in terms of like you just get to know people at different platforms and start having those relationships so mm-hmm. i'm just going to mute this because my my phone is going crazy there we go um that's that's probably sony and microsoft messaging me uh it's, huh. it won't be it won't be they won't care <laughs> um but like there's you, you know you have those relationships and you kind of bring the thing out and, and that can have as much of a thing as like does does Shuhei at Sony like this game? Then in which case we'll we'll go and do something with them. Or does it does it make sense for Xbox or does it make sense for Nintendo? Like and we've we've actually kind of I think we definitely had games kind of launch first on Nintendo, first on Sony. I don't think we've ever had a game launch first on Xbox, actually. That's that's something we've not done. But not through any kind of, you know, negativity, just that's not how it's worked out. After that, often it comes down to how much money it's gonna cost versus how much money you think realistically you're gonna make. So mm-hmm. with games where like Thomas was alone very easy game to port very cheap to port each time and always makes lots of money so we put it on everything mm-hmm. um with other games you make those decisions as well and also uh crucially like whether you think it'll be fun on those platforms mm-hmm. good example of this is our recent games were um subsurface circular and quarantine circular mm-hmm. which is kind of text adventure games and they're really fun on pc uh and they're really cool on like ipad and they're great on um switch where you can play a handheld Mm-hmm. I'm skeptical of whether that experience feels good played on a television. So for mm-hmm. me, it's like, so when we're looking at like, you know, Sony or Xbox ports of that, it's like, 
is this the right is this the right place for it you know and ultimately it's going to be a case of when we think we've worked out how to do that well on the tv we'll do it but until mm-hmm. then we're maybe going to be a bit more cautious so there's now, lots of factors and it's never fanboyism that's the other thing to always point out to the audience of like it's never that i like sony more than microsoft as a as a consumer it's mm-hmm. always it's always defined by like can we make a good game can we make enough money to justify the cost um and what are the opportunities available on that platform sure and i have to wonder how you go about deciding is it a good experience on this platform you said it felt you know the uh the text adventures felt really good on PC and then they, they apted well into iPad or on switch. Who do you guys go through as far as checking that? I'm sure you guys play yourselves, but do you, do you, I mean, is this something you ask your girlfriend or do you ask a friend or do you hire outside console? Like what's the process there for deciding what's best because you took subsurface circular, moved it to switch. Uh, whereas Thomas was alone, of course, easy to port, as you said. Yeah. Um, so often it's just us, like, you know, the, the company's run by people who are into video games and, and it's, we're exactly as opinionated as anyone who's ever played a video game is. So we Mm -hmm. have our, our own kind of takes on that. Um, yeah, you have lots of conversations with friends. Generally, we, we don't do kind of focus testing, which is kind of the front end of a development. You'll like do a focus test, like, do you guys want a movie about dinosaurs? Um, Mm -hmm. we, we do more of the play test side and we do a lot of that. So right at the end or midpoint in development through to the end of a project we'll bring in playtesters so for example like john wick uh one of our more recent ones mm-hmm. we um we had playtesting from like halfway through development right up until release but that focus is more on making sure the interface feels good making sure it plays well making sure players understand what they're meant to be doing our tutorials working that kind of question um mm-hmm. but in terms of like big choices that's that's usually just kind of those the me and my uh my co-owner of the company kind of just chat it out and figure it out Mm-hmm. Now, no, it is not a stretch to say that Mike Bithel games have pretty impressive voice casts. I mean, Wallace, and then you have Circus, and then Sue Perkins shows up uh, in one of your more recent projects. And then you're working on a big franchise like John Wick, which I think has mm. to be scary because you scaled it down, but it works so well. And talk to me about how you build those relationships outside of strictly game development, but mm-hmm. maybe with voice cast or whatnot. So voice actors are interesting. It's a kind of a completely different world. Uh, and our current project that we're working on right now is all voice actors. Like that's 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 what that focus is on the new thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's interesting. It's honestly it's it's kind of straightforward. Like I, this thing I always say to people is ultimately um, hiring an actor. You basically just find out who their agent is, talk to their agent. The agent has a view on how much you should pay for them. Uh, mm-hmm. You negotiate and then you pay and then you get them in the studio and you record. Like it's not. I think it's one of those areas which often we kind of mystify because because actors are celebrities and we see them on talk shows and it's this different thing. But ultimately, it's just a person who provides a, a job, does a job. It's it's no different to booking a plumber, right? Like it's mm-hmm. it's an amazing skill, it's an amazing talent, but it, they are they're people doing jobs. So in all those cases, it was a case of uh, looking at what we were making and going, this bad guy, oh, Andy Serkis would be amazing for this. And then just going and finding who who his agent was, and and in and in Andy's case, it was literally a case of um, finding the agent, finding out that he was interested in game stuff, and he was he was cool. Finding out when he was available, he had this gap in his schedule. I think he was just coming off of um, the first Star Wars movie, and he mm-hmm. had like this this weird gap in his schedule. And we were like, well, maybe we can put something in there. And we found a studio that was relatively close to where he'd been shooting on that, so we could get him into a voice studio and and work for the morning. So it's it's logistics, it's planning. What's really nice is is with actors, um, uh, 
you can build these really great relationships and we've had actors who kind of come back and are in multiple different things of ours you know and that's mm-hmm. that's always really nice and 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 i've got some got some actors who i just love working with and and who do keep popping up in things and that's you under you start to realize why there's certain movie directors who always have these few actors in their in their movies just because you you do make these friendships and you go well actually i want to kind of have your your performance in here and, and and work it out but honestly it's not a mystical magical process it's just people who are good at their jobs and and you get them in a room and you you direct them and figure it out I'm thinking back to an interview I I heard with you about you at one point in your career said you you needed a boss. You needed to bring somebody in to help you keep from being so creative or going off on a crazy idea. And then I'm having to, I'm hearing you talk right now and you sound like a creator but you also sound like someone who's comfortable managing. And I'm thinking about like did you give your voice actors director directions? Do you did you feel comfortable doing that? Do you now feel like a boss uh, at this point? I mean, it's 2020, which is a far cry from when Thomas was alone first came out in 2012. And before that, yeah, uh, 10 years ago, you're working on Dead to Rights and all I mean, that stuff. Yeah. Oh, wow. Dead to Rights. I I, I, I checked out Let's Play that the other day. That that game's held up. Like, I'm proud I of lo- that game. I really like right Retribution. Game. I low-key yeah, enjoyed a, that. That was a great fun game. It was a fun game. I did, I did, uh, did cutscene setups for that. So I didn't do very – it wasn't very exciting work, but I was proud of it. Um yeah, I mean, in terms of, so I, I you know, I, that's why I brought in kind of a, a co-owner for the studio, a guy called Alexander Solinsky, who does kind of the business side of everything. And, and a large chunk of our days is me and him figuring out what we want to do next, how we want to do things, how we want to run the company. Um, that works really well. In terms of creative stuff, yeah, I direct. So I'm, I am, I guess on that level, I am everyone's boss, but it's it's more about collaboration. It's it's not, being a director isn't a dictatorship. It's not bossing people around. It's it's collaborating. It's It's figuring out, uh, how you take the, the 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 things that these in in my case my games are usually about ten to twenty people. How do I take these twenty people's work and make it all fit together so that it makes something that players like? You know, so it's it's more like that. And yeah, I direct I direct uh, voice voice cast. What's interesting with the direction, specifically of actors, is I've gotten better as as, as time's gone on. You know, Thomas was alone was literally the first time I'd ever directed a voice actor, getting Danny in the booth to do that, um, and thankfully he was a really good voice actor so he didn't need much direction so i kind of just went yeah that's really funny thank you daddy and he just carried on and, and he won a bafta for it which he absolutely deserved because he he did most of the work there um but as, as time's gone on, i've definitely gained confidence and gone better as we as we all do right when we mm-hmm. do the same thing over and over um and that was yeah that's why we got to a point where now i'm kind of comfortable enough doing that that we've been able to do much more voice actor focused work kind of recently mm-hmm. that's that's really fascinating and uh, most recent, or one of the most recent projects, working on John Wick Hex, which you had to essentially Ian translate. Ian McShane was still scary. That was scary. Directing was Ian McShane. Oh, I'm just a massive fan. I got him to do some Deadwood stuff for me off off mic, just because I was like, I just, I, I love you, Ian McShane. Uh, that was that was intimidating. Like when a big actor, like a w- amazing career, kind of walks mm-hmm. into a board, that's utterly terrifying. Um, and and he's, I mean, his performance in John Wick is is intimidating to say the least oh. as well. But he's lovely. He's a sweet, sweet man. He was he was an absolute joy to work with. He was fantastic. That, but still, that's cool just, to hear. It's scary to see, it's scary to meet someone like Ian McShane. It's like being at Madame Two Swords. You're meeting someone who's you're you're on the television. You shouldn't be here in the room with me. This is weird. Well, okay. So tell me how how did you go about in a mindset scaling a something as massive as as John Wick? Because that, to me, that's a huge franchise. Uh, to bring that into a game form when 
triple a high explosive high octane games for action franchises are are what we expect for something like that so how do you go about planning out john wick hex it was interesting it was i think honestly the nicest part of it was that um they at the film side like that they don't think of it as a a mega franchise now i'm the business people do the suits definitely do but like in terms Mm -hmm. of the creatives it's it's an independent movie like that first john wick should not have worked <laughs> in terms of like being a big franchise it is a mm-hmm. is a strange little action movie mm-hmm. with amazing direction and writing and performances but it was it wasn't ever created to be like a marvel movie franchise mm-hmm. but people loved it because of that people loved it because it was this, just this amazing artful kind of artfully produced piece of work and then it grew into a franchise from there so the first conversations I was having with the filmmakers and with the producers over there um, were all about that. And they weren't, they were looking for that kind of project. They didn't want to do the kind of triple a, they didn't want to make a generic, boring third person shooter action game uh, of their franchise. Cause as well, the other thing that's fascinating about this stuff is the people in the studios are now gamers. Like gamers have existed long enough that like you're talking to a suit I literally my first meeting one of the one of the guys in the room when the you know when i say hollywood executive exactly the image that comes into your head with that mm-hmm. me and him are talking and he's like you know what we really just want to make some we, we don't want we want to be making golden eyes and i was like oh okay you've played video games or at least you've like researched them a little bit you know that golden eyes are, like that's the right thing to be saying to me that's exciting as a gamer i'm mm-hmm. like okay that's the that's what we're aiming for we're going to try and do something interesting and creative and original here um so they, they, they were always pushing for that kind of stuff anyway. And then when our, our vision of it, our take on it was doing uh, essentially like fight choreography chess and kind of building into that action choreography stuff. Uh, and that was just that immediately clicked with uh, the studio. And then, uh, you know, later in the process, when we started working with um, uh, Chad Stahelski, who directs the movies um, and their stunt teams and all that, again, they all got it because that's the stuff that they love about their movies. Mm-hmm. Um so it was really cool. It was just a really nice collaborative experience, and it was never, but it was never a fight. There was no. I'd love to make out that like it was this bold choice we made and fought the system, and we got an interesting game made. Mm-hmm. It was honestly that that's what they wanted. They wanted something original and, and different. You know, they wanted to experiment, and that's an amazing opportunity for a for a game studio to kind of be in that kind of collaboration. So th- this this is a lead into a second question that a listener submitted. But earlier you referenced the idea of putting uh, a a game on a particular system due to negotiation deals, and it's it's never uh, a mental approach, uh, a bias, I guess is the right way to say yeah. it. John Wick Hex comes to PlayStation Four. It's also on Windows. It's on Mac. Do you do you look at that and think why don't we put it more places? Is it a licensing thing? What goes into all right? We can do this one, but we're not going to do that one. So I, I think I think it's. Uh, I mean, obviously, I can't talk about specific deals and sure. all that kind of stuff under the hood. But to speak generically about releasing games in mm-hmm. a more general sense, which is probably safer ground for me. Mm-hmm. Um, it's you, you. You look at what's available. You look at what the deals are on the table, and you figure out kind of the best way to get the thing in front of in front of players. And crucially, as well in in the modern era, like you know, it's not forever. You know, you know, you're going to be able to maybe do things down the road. You're going to be able to explore different opportunities down the road. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're kind of you make those choices. But ultimately, yeah, I mean, bluntly, it comes down to what can we get done. What can we get done to a high quality? Oh, that's the other thing for an indie studio, like porting a game to every console at the same time is a massive logistical challenge. Like that's a mm-hmm. really 
hard thing. I think the engine companies have done a really good job of convincing the audience that there's literally like an export. Here's the export to Xbox. Here's the export to PlayStation. Not how mm. it works. It takes months, and you you know it's it's a lot of work to do at the same time. So you look at what you can do. You look at the time you have. You look at uh, you know the deals and, and money on the table and all of those kind of things, and you make the the choice that you think is going to a best serve the game. B, best serve the audience by producing a game that's good. And C, finally, serve you. So you get to keep making games because ultimately that's what we're all in this to do. Um, Especially in the indie side, none of us are rich. We're all in it to just keep making stuff. So we figure out the deals that make sense for that as well. Um, But yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's always different. There's always different kinds of situations on the table. And there's definitely pros and cons to whatever approach. Bring it out on everything at once or bring it out in kind of a staggered way. There's lots of different kind of pros and cons to that and no two mm-hmm. games are the same um in that in that way that's i i love hearing that kind of stuff i to me that i love the insight that's the whole premise of these interviews is to get expanded knowledge on things and being awesome. that we're an xbox show we get a lot of people that write in and, and they center their questions around services and game pass because that's what microsoft is is really i think at full throttle on at the moment oh yeah absolutely when when you see services like that, I, pers- I suppose Games with Gold and PlayStation Plus might have pioneered this on, 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 in a way. But when you see things like Game Pass, mm-hmm. uh, does that change the way you maybe approach development or the thought process? Because Thomas was alone was in Game Pass at one point, I believe. It was, yeah. Yeah, for a, I can't remember how long, but yeah, for a decent chunk of time, yeah. And I think before that in, in PS Plus, similar as well, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, did you find more people played or, or bought the game or brought attention to it by way of those those subscription services? I think so. I think so. I think what's really interesting about it is it is it definitely empowers an audience to try something, right? Mm-hmm. If you're like, you know, if you're if you're the average gamer, you know, you you have a, a genre you love or franchises you love, and you're like, I'm I am day one gonna play X Y Z. Um, but then if something's available to you for free, you're much more likely to try it, right? The, my stuff, like the movies I buy versus the movies I will ha- watch the first 10 minutes of on Netflix to see if they're good. Mm-hmm. Like, And don't get me wrong, 90% of the time, I'm not watching any part <laughs> past the 10 minutes of that movie, but sometimes mm-hmm. I find a gem. Um, same is true of demos. Like I was, I was not a Final Fantasy guy and I played the Final Fantasy VII uh, remaster demo and was like, I'm buying this tomorrow. This is incredible. Uh, mm-hmm. So, so I think for me, yeah, I love the idea of people who would never buy Thomas was alone, giving it, giving it a try. And I'm, and there's definitely like you get the anecdotal kind of people tweeting at you or messaging you on whatever, saying, I, I, I never played Thomas was alone, and I just got it for free on Games Pass, and it's, it's great. I love that. That's, that's really cool. I love reaching those new players. And from a, on the cynical business side of it, maybe that person's more likely to buy my next game. You know, maybe that's, mm-hmm. maybe that's a fan now who's going to kind of come out and try and play stuff. So I think it's a positive. I think it's, I think it's worked really well for us. We've, we've, uh, we've definitely found audiences for our games, uh, like historically, uh, with that. So that's, it's worth it in terms of Thomas was loaded. It's a little different, I, I guess, cause it's quite an old game. Like it's been mm-hmm. around for a while. Uh, so I don't, I don't know how applicable those lessons are to like, if I was bringing out a game tomorrow, would I instantly release it for free on one of those platforms? That's a, that's a bigger question. That's a trickier one to work out. But uh, for Thomas was alone, it's definitely kind of helped to embed Thomas was alone in people's memories. And mm-hmm. that's the interesting thing with Thomas was alone. Thomas was alone is a game that more so than any of our other games has hit a level of saturation where people know what it is. Even if it's just to make a joke about rectangles, they know what it is. And that's, that's cool to have that kind of cultural impact. That's, that's something I'm very proud of. That's, 
I would imagine and you have a lot of right to be proud of that. So it's certainly transcended past uh, mm-hmm. the initial releases there. Now, I know you have a hard out. And before we talk about North Star Rising, uh, I'm just curious, what are you playing right now and how are you filling your game time? What am I playing right now? I'm playing I'm playing a lot of Final Fantasy VII. Mm-hmm. I've been going back and playing those Call of Duty remasters because those are mm-hmm. really fun. Like I, I've always enjoyed the sing- specifically single player campaigns in Call of Duty. I always I'm always there for. So I've been playing those because um, one and two are out now. Uh, what else have I been playing? Uh, a lot of AAA stuff. Hitman Two. I'm finally giving that some time because mm-hmm. I love Hitman. But when Hitman Two came out, I was super busy on John Wick, so I just did not give it the attention it deserved. And obviously now we all have a little bit more free time, so I've been. Mm-hmm. Or at least we're at home. Maybe not free time, but we're at home. So I've been playing that. Um, other than that, what have I been playing recently? I went well, back and that... played Far Cry Primal because I just wanted like an Ubisoft open world thing just to sink mm-hmm. some time into. So I've been playing that a bit as well. So just yeah, lots of lots of lots of old stuff that I've been trying to catch up on. Really, those those Ubisoft games are great for check boxes. I just want to check this and say I've done it and go it through. It feels nice, right? That's that's yeah. Especially like for me, like a big part of my kind of routine is I love going for like long walks. Like I will actively figure out like what's the four mile route I can take to my favorite coffee shop. Like completely go out. I live I live around kind of a lot of kind of rural areas, so it's nice to go out and kind of wander and stuff. But obviously because of all of this, I've not been going out so much and and not been able to do that. So yeah, having like routine and kind of yeah like you say ticking things off a list is just therapeutically nice right now i'm enjoying that you okay so you said hitman and then of course my mind raced because i love asking questions in my mind mm-hmm. volume and john wick hex they seem to share kind of a kindred spirit to something like a hitman do you play a game that might be doing similar ideas of stealth and espionage mm-hmm. and think oh for my next project this mechanic might work or that idea oh, might sure I mean, I'm a big Hitman fan. Like, I, I would, I think with Hitman, I definitely play Hitman and always, 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 always when playing Hitman, I'm like, why can't I make a Hitman game? I'd love to do something like that. I'd love to do something that's kind of a, the, the Bithel Games version of Hitman. And all it always comes down to is like, those games are really hard to make. Like, fair play mm-hmm. to IO. Those are really complex, expensive, uh, skillfully produced games. And my my thing, my reasoning, the, re- the, the argument I always give myself to not make that kind of game is it would not be as good. And I'm not interested in being second best at something. I want to, if I'm going to do something, I'm going to try and do something that feels original and interesting and cool within that genre. And as long as I believe and I genuinely do that, I could not make a game that's as good as Hitman in the Hitman genre. I'm mm-hmm. not going to do it because because I have already taken care of it. There's we are fine for Hitman games. The the the, the need among society for Hitman is being uh, taken care of. So mm-hmm. with something like volume, it was. There's stuff in volume that definitely is inspired by him, and there's some social stealth stuff in there. There's some some interesting things that kind of are deliberately kind of stolen from Hitman. That's mm-hmm. fine because that was like a that was a mashup of Hitman and Thief and Metal Gear and all these different things I liked. Um, that's cool because that's something new and original. And you know maybe it's not as good as Hitman or it's or you, you it's different to those games. That's cool. But yeah, Hitman like doing the Hitman clone is something I talk myself out of roughly every six months because I would love to do it. But I'd have a great time making. It. I'm not sure people would enjoy playing it as much as I enjoy making it. Though. That's that that is I, I love I just that insight is so cool. Now. <laughs> Mike Bizzle, a game you are making right now, uh, North Star Rising, a unique project that I, I, I can't, I need you to articulate. Tell me about North Star Rising, what it is, what you're doing with it, and what your goals are with it. So it's not a game. That's the first that's yeah. the weird thing. Because <laughs> um, I have to keep correcting myself because I keep saying it comes, I've been like promoting and talking about games for 10 years. So like 
not doing that has been really tricky. So it's a, it's essentially it's like an audio book. It's a it's a, it's a weekly podcast, mm-hmm. but it's not a uh, it's not an interview. It's it's a, a scripted podcast basically. So you get basically a chapter of the book every week. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're I by the time this is out probably we've got two out. Um, so we're 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 launching it. It comes out every Thursday. Um, and uh, it's been really well received, which is great. It's it's a it's an audio book. It's uh, narrated by a guy called Scrubius Pip, who is an amazing kind of poet. He's a, a rapper in the UK. He's fantastic, and no one's ever going to narrate an audio book, to my knowledge, yet or fiction at least. And I was like, you would be so good at telling stories about space. So we got mm-hmm. him to do the narration, and then we've got this amazing cast, kind of uh, enlightening all the characters and great sound effects work. So basically, it's like a like an like like an audio book, like a like a radio play, kind of old school, bit bit Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, a bit Star Trekky in places. Like it's kind of playing into that, but kind of comedy sci-fi vibe. Um, but it's it's nice. It was basically I wanted during all of this this uh, worldwide situation we're in right now. I wanted to make something positive, but I also wanted to make something that was out now. I didn't mm-hmm. want to make games take a while to make, and I realized I wasn't going to be able to. If I started making a game at the point where about a month ago when I decided to do this, I knew it wouldn't be out till like way after or you know way into this process. Mm-hmm. And I wanted something now. I wanted positivity. I wanted something optimistic and upbeat. Um, so yeah, I just pitched this idea, and we've been producing it for about a month now, and. You know, we're a few episodes ahead of where people are listening to it. So it's kind mm-hmm. of this rolling thing. I've got to learn how to be a showrunner, which I've never done before. So we're, I'm literally, I haven't, like, the second episode's out now. Uh, and I've not written the finale yet. And there's this weird thing of, like, this thing is going on and people are hearing it. And we're, we're kind of making it. And we're making little adjustments to it. You know, if we notice the audience is liking this thing, we'll we'll tweak things later in the, in the, in the run and stuff like that. Which is something i've never done with a game because a game you make and release it and then that's it you do some dlc some updates whatever but like ultimately it's a you make something and then you put on a show this is more of a conversation which is interesting so it's cool it's off to a good start numbers are really cool the metrics are great and uh people seem to like it which is cool it's getting good reviews so we'll see we'll see if people like it we've got six we're going to do six episodes in this in this season and see if it's worth bringing back for a second season any idea? My final question for you then: Any idea of this this universe perhaps translating into a Bithel project later on? That's not a podcast. I, if it's interesting, if people like it, we'll we'll play. We we've always kind of all of our universes are always kind of linked. There's a little story for people mm-hmm. who are really fans of our stories. There's little things in there that connect everything up. Uh, so this is no different. Um, but yeah, if people really dig it, then then there's loads of opportunities hopefully to use it. We're making this kind of fun sci-fi universe um I'm, yeah maybe who knows we'll see um but yeah we're, we're doing a few different things at the moment kind of but they're all secret and all years and years away from being stuff we can talk about unfortunately um yeah well years and years away but plenty to look forward to and i'm i'm so excited to see where they end up and uh how your projects come out mike thank you so much for taking the time today to to share your insights and thoughts absolute pleasure really good to be here Thank you.